Hey everybody, I'm Mike McDonald. My buddy Jesse Stratton loves some of the cheesiest movies ever made. He spent years telling me about them all, so now I'm finally watching these movies for the very first time. This is our podcast where we break those movies down together. This is the Celluloid Dumpster Fire. Hey everybody, today we're talking about the 1979 sci-fi fantasy horror film Phantasm. This is an independently financed and produced film made on a budget of about $300,000, but nobody's really sure because there weren't any accountants attached to this movie. (laughs) And it's probably one of the most successful movies we've ever discussed. This movie made $15 million in the U.S. It made another $7 million internationally, making it probably the most successful, low-budget, independent, cult classic film that we've ever discussed on this podcast. Yeah, it's, uh, it hit it out of the park. Uh, Absolutely. In spite of Dan Coscarelli's editing. <laughs> Movie was written, directed, filmed, and edited by Don Coscarelli. I just said Dan, but his name's Don. Yeah. I don't know why I called him Dan. Basically known for the Phantasm and Beastmaster franchises. Hell yeah. More recently known for Bubba Hotep, an award-winning film starring Bruce Campbell as an elderly Elvis Presley and Ozzie Davis as an elderly John F. Kennedy. That's a good movie. And it's yet to be filmed sequel, Bubba Nosferatu, Curse of the She-Vampires. Uh-huh. He also did uh, John Dies at the end, which I wasn't yes. really in the movie, but I really liked that book series. Okay. So I was excited to see it, you know, as a movie, but yeah, I really love that book. Yeah, I don't know anything about either one, but I like the title, so I was kind of uh, interested in watching the movie. Don't know. We'll see what happens. Oh, yeah. Film was produced by Don's dad, Dak Coscarelli, who put up most of the money to make the film and got the rest of the money from local doctors and lawyers. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. You're like, you got to go after dentists, man. They got all this money and like, they don't know what to do with it. Like back out, that's how like they got all the horror movies back in the day. It was right. like dentists and they just invest and they're like, whatever, just give us our money back, you know? And <laughs> That's why I don't make a movie because people are going to invest in it. They're going to give me a couple hundred thousand dollars to make a movie. It's going to make 15 bucks at the box office because I bought a ticket to my own damn movie. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to want their money back. <laughs> yeah. Production design and ba- makeup by Don's mom, Kate Coscarelli. Oh, yeah. Family affair. Absolutely. Anything to get this guy out of the damned house. (laughs) (laughs) Special effects by Paul Pepperman, who also has writing credits on all of the Beastmaster films. But after this movie, he never worked in special effects again. I think he was just filling the role because there wasn't anybody else. Yeah. Also, it's like the really simple design, uh, like the special effects. Yeah. Like, so it's like, eh. Right. Movie stars A. Michael Baldwin as Mike. As a child, he appeared in Starsky and Hutch, Eight is Enough, and has a voice credit on an episode of I Am the Greatest, The Adventures of Muhammad Ali. Loved that cartoon when I was a kid. I never heard of it. 
No. Man. It was it was basically Muhammad Ali was a crime fighting superhero and had a bunch of kids that followed him around. So like the Mr. T cartoon. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I guess I have seen it. Not with Muhammad Ali. I hadn't seen as an adult, he's made it a, a career of appearing in horror thrillers with one-word titles like Brutal and Pickaxe and Flay, but not Saw, which kind of seems like a miss there. Yeah. His dad was Gerald Baldwin, who was an animator working on the Flintstones, the Jetsons, the Bullwinkle Show, and the Smurfs. Nice. And he's currently he currently owns a film school in Austin, Texas, where he teaches acting. So a little Kaminsky method there. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have Bill Thornbury as Jody. He started a career in 1975 with roles in Sarah T, Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, and The Rockford Files. Then he made this film. After this movie, he got a recurring role in a CBS primetime soap called The Secrets of Midland Heights. That show got canceled after eight episodes, which ended his TV career. And since then, he's appeared in the Phantasm films and not much else. Uh, we've got Reggie Bannister as Reggie. Reggie. This role was custom built for him. Oh, yeah. Because he was good friends with Don Coscarelli. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. It pays, you know, it pays out. Reggie's my favorite character, man. Yeah. Yeah, I like Reggie. He's probably the most successful member of this cast. He's got 57 acting credits since 1975. He's basically the go-to guy whenever they need a cop, a doctor, or a professor to appear on video in a film. Yeah. Uh, which is weird. I don't know. I've, I've seen him, you know, as like security guard or cops in a bunch of movies. But they're, yeah, they're like, Usually low budget horror movies or right flicks and stuff, but yeah, I love Reggie. He has appearances in L.A. Law, Silent Night, Deadly Night Four, Wishmaster, Cemetery Gate, Spring Break Massacre, and my favorite, Bloody Bloody Bible Camp. Oh man, yeah, I want to see that. <laughs> we got Kathy Lester as the Lady in Lavender. She produced a couple of shorts, but otherwise she has no other film credits outside of the Phantasm franchise. Most of her acting career has been spent making commercials and appearing in stage productions. And finally, Angus Scrim as the tall man. Oh, this guy's awesome. Yeah. He studied drama under William C. DeMille, the brother of famous director Cecil B. DeMille. He's a staple of Don Coscarelli films, made a career playing creepy villains in the 70s. He was a pretty successful TV character actor with appearances in Quincy, Project UFO, and that Andy Griffith junkyard astronaut show we love so much, Salvage One. <laughs> yeah. On the big screen, he appeared in The Lost Empire, Wishmaster, Mind Warp. Later, he had a recurring role on the TV series Alias. He did some voice acting in Super Robot Monkey Team Hyperforce Go. <laughs> I just love that title. That's the only reason I put that in there. Yeah. He also worked as a writer and editor for TV Guide, Cinema Magazine, and the now defunct Los Angeles Herald Examiner. And he's got a Grammy. He does? Yes. 
He wrote liner notes for just about every genre of music, including writing liner notes for Frank Sinatra, Miles Davis, The Beatles, and Itzhak Perlman. And he won a Grammy in 1974 for Best Album Notes for the classic Eric Wolfgang Korngold album. Oh, man. Yeah. So if Uh you want to watch this uh, streaming, it's on Tubi. And it is the Bad Robot 4K restoration that was requested by J.J. Abrams. Yeah, it does. It looks, it's popping fresh. Oh, yeah. Like- it looks great. Yeah. We start off with an exterior night shot of an old mansion that is a funeral home slash mausoleum. Then we cut to a couple of people having sex in the cemetery. Let's get that out of the way right up front. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is Tommy. Don't worry about getting to know Tommy. He's not going to be around long. Uh, When they finish, the girl, who we discover is the lady in lavender, cups a boob and stabs Tommy in the chest. And for just an instant, her face transforms into that of an old man and then back to the woman. Kind of weird. We don't get any explanation either, which is one of the things I actually like about this movie because it makes it spookier. Yeah, uh, he was inspired by Jallo and stuff. Oh, it shows. Yeah, and that you know, this movie we're going to be talking is kind of like the editor. It's like everything's very moody, and uh, it's the cin- cinematography is really dreamy, you know. And it, it it seems like it's like really artsy and stuff. So yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's awesome. We can't we can't do it justice. It's like. We're going to tell you what's happening on the screen, but it, it really it takes away from the atmosphere, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you're not familiar with Jalo as a genre or the editor, go back and listen to episode 31 where we covered that movie. It's a lot of fun. Now it's daytime all of a sudden, and there is a hearse parked outside that house. Jody and Reggie are talking, and they still can't believe that Tommy killed himself. This is this house that they're filming at is the Dunsmuir Hellman Historic Estate in Oakland, California. And it was used as filming locations for So I Married an Axe Murderer. And here's our obligatory bond reference a view to a kill. Yeah. It's creepy as hell. It's just like this giant mausoleum and stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's awesome. It's so awesome. Yeah, it really is. Well, Jody goes into the mausoleum to visit somebody, and, and he's standing alone in this marble hallway. It's all this white marble hallway. It's made to look like marble. I think it's actually painted that way because there's a very clear pattern to the black lines on in the marble. Yeah. So... I, I believe that all of the interior shots were actually on a set that was built. So it, it's not actually inside the house. They were only allowed to film outside the house. Jody stops at the vault where his parents are interred. Uh, Jody Sr. and Anne, who died two years previously. Then we never know how they died. They just died. Yeah. Outside the funeral home, the hearse is gone, and a kid is riding through the cemetery on a dirt bike. This is Mike, and as he's riding through the cemetery, his engine dies. He hears this creepy sound, almost like animals, and he sees a little short figure wearing a cloak ducking behind the grave markers. Kind of reminded me of an Ewok, 
maybe reminded me a little more of the tink tinks in Spaceballs. Yeah, the Jawas. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of people said that they ripped them off. And it's like, I don't know, the movie was already pretty much done when Star Wars came out in the theater. Yeah, they spent uh, over a year filming this movie on weekends. So they started making it in 1977. They started making this in 1977. They spent a little over a year filming it and another eight months to edit it. So, yeah, they, they were kind of produced around the same time, completely separate. There was really no connection between Don Coscarelli and George Lucas. It's just they both had this idea for how do we make something scary? Well, we hide it under a blanket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back inside the crypt. Jody is investigating the sounds that he heard. He heard the same sounds that Mike heard outside. He also sees one of the little short robed figures. Then uh, the tall man grabs him by his shoulder and tells him the funeral's about to begin. We get a little bit of a jump scare there. Yeah. Next, Reggie and Jody are standing by Tommy's casket as the organ plays a song that almost sounds like Yesterday by the Beatles. You know, Reggie and Jody mentioned that, uh, you know, Jody didn't let his brother come to the funeral. And we immediately cut to Mike outside. That's Jody's brother hiding in the bushes, watching the funeral with binoculars. (laughs) (laughs) He's watching as the pallbearers carry Tommy's casket to the grave site. And when the funeral ends, Jody and Reggie leave together. Then Mike watches as the tall man just lifts the casket up single-handed, just tucks it under an arm, and loads it back into the hearse for some reason. Yeah, that was cool. That was a cool shot. Yeah, it was. Next, we see Mike walking to the house of a psychic. A little girl answers, and it appears she knows him. Apparently, he's been here before. A lot. And he doesn't have to pay. Mike wants to talk to the girl's grandmother. It turns out that... Her grandmother is actually the psychic. And Mike says he's worried about Jody because he found out Jody's leaving. We cut to a shot of Mike and Jody returning home in Jody's black barracuda. Oh, yeah. This move, this car is in the film because Don Coscarelli wanted one. Yeah. So he got the money for the film. He, he bought the car for the movie on the understanding that when we're done filming the movie, I get the car. Yeah, (laughs) that thing shows up in like everyone. Well, I think in three, they use a newer one. But yeah, the the Hemi Kuda is like, that's like their Batmobile, you know? Yes. Yeah, it is. Well, apparently there's something wrong with the car. So they look under the hood and then Mike pulls a ratchet out of his pocket and crawls under the car to fix things. Because, well, I mean, who doesn't have a ratchet under the in your pocket all the time? It was the 70s. Right. Different time. You had a uh, a pack of Hubba Bubba, and you had a ratchet, and you had a Mr. Microphone. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) switchblade combs everywhere. Switchblade combs everywhere, yes. Well, Toby arrives. He's back in town for Tommy's funeral. Jody tells Tommy he's thinking of sending Mike to live with his aunt. And he's saying all this like Mike isn't three feet away from him listening to this. Yeah. (laughs) Jody says that Mike follows him everywhere. And we see a scene of of Jody riding his 10 speed down the street as Mike runs along behind like a forgotten puppy dog. Yeah. Back at the psychic, 
the girl says her grandmother says that he just shouldn't, he shouldn't worry. Jody's going to take Mike with him. Then Mike tells him about seeing the tall man loading the casket and he takes off on his motorcycle, but the tall man makes him wipe out apparently. So you hear like a, like a boom after the tall man sees him and then the motorcycle just falls over. Not really sure what's going on there, but we're going to see it again. The girl says her grandma wants to play a game and a box appears on the table in front of Mike, just, just materializes there in front of him. He has to put his hand in the box. And when he does, the box grabs his hand and holds him until he stops being afraid. As soon as he stops being afraid, the box lets him go. Yes. Yeah, totally inspired by Dune. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. Just, uh, the movie predates the Dune movie. So it's like kind of like, like if you didn't read that book, it's like the first time you ever got to see that kind of right. stuff. Right. Yeah. Which is weird. And those early books. Now, I haven't read any of the Dune books that, that his son wrote, but the early books that were written by Frank Herbert, they're just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, they're awesome. Well, Mike's heard enough and he puts his money on top of the box. And as soon as he does, the box and his money both disappear. <laughs> and, and Mike leaves. And as soon as he's gone, the girl's grandmother just thinks that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Back at the cemetery, we see the girl entering the the cemetery with a, with some flowers. We also see Reggie pulling up to Jody's house in his little rust bucket ice cream truck. Oh, uh, yeah. And he joins Jody on the porch and they just start playing a song. Yeah, I love this, man. That is like something that they don't do in movies no more, like just like improv to like jam session. Yeah. Cool yeah, as there's, love. There's, there's no real. I mean, there's a hint at some point that maybe Jody is a musician of some, a professional musician that he's been maybe touring or something, but they don't really go into any detail. No, no real explanations there. Um, but Jody. Uh, and Reggie sit on the porch and, and play this this song. Cut to the girl in the mausoleum, and she opens up a door. Then we get an exterior shot of the mansion, and we hear the girl screaming, and we'll never see her again. Nope. That night, Jody arrives at the Dunes Cantina. Inside, the lady in lavender is sitting at the bar, and Mike is outside peeping through a window watching the whole thing. Well, Jody leaves with the Lady in Lavender, and Mike follows as they walk to the cemetery. Jody and the Lady in Lavender are making out on a grave as Mike watches from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of funny because she's getting undressed, and Jody goes, Wow. <laughs> and then it cuts to Mike, and he goes, Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of kind of silly there for a second. Well, Mike, uh, here's the sound, this strange rumbling or animal sound that he heard previously. And he goes to investigate and he sees this little short figure in a robe running toward him. I mean, running straight at him. Well, Mike runs off screaming, which surprises Jody, who has the lady in lavender's panties in his mouth. He doesn't take him out of his mouth as he asks her to wait there and while he goes to take care of his brother. Yeah, that thing is so hilarious. <laughs> 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 They're getting it on, right? And uh, 
like all of a sudden you just see this kid run behind them because they're like on a they're like on a grave right yeah there's there's and you just ah! you get the doppler effect in there <laughs> and man, it's just as hell i burst it out like almost every time i see that <laughs> well jody catches up with mike and mike explains about what he saw jody says it might be a gopher in heat <laughs> <laughs> he gives mike the keys to his car and sends him home then goes back to find the girl he the girl has left him there apparently bringing your little brother on a booty call is a deal breaker oh yeah <laughs> Well, Mike's back at home in bed asleep. He opens up his eyes when he hears people wailing. His bed is suddenly in the cemetery, and the tall man is standing over the head of the bed, and the dead pop up out of the ground and grab Mike. Oh, it's a great shot. It really is. It is spooky as heck. With that guy just standing over there, that's just the perfect menacing pose for that shot. Oh, yeah. Next morning, Jody pulls up outside the Dunes Cantina. This was actually a bar. It was located at 16232 Pacific Coast Highway in Oakland. This is one of the great things about a cult classic. People research the hell out of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it looks now like maybe it was torn down at some point. There's a Japanese restaurant there now. Well, Mike walks it, wakes up after Jody... Mike walks up to the bar after Jody goes inside, and we see shots of Mike walking through downtown, checking the change slot on phone booths. This was pre-cell phone. We didn't all have a phone in our pocket. We had to use the one that was installed on the corner, and you had to put a quarter in to make a phone call. And sometimes people didn't wait around for their change, and you could get lucky and yeah. uh, get you some extra bubblegum money that way. I never walked past a phone booth without checking the change slot. Yeah, I used to do that. <laughs> Phones and uh, drink machines. Man. Drink so machines too, yeah. Now I can't remember the last time I used cash to pay for something. <laughs> <laughs> well, he hears footsteps and he turns to see the tall man walking down the other side of the street. I mean, just booming footsteps too. And see the tall man walking down the other side of the street. We also see Reggie loading his ice cream truck, and the tall man stops and turns to stare at Mike through the steam that's escaping from the open doors on Reggie's ice cream truck. There are big holes rusted in the side of that ice cream truck, too. Oh, yeah. Well, then the tall man just turns and continues walking down the street. Back home that night, Mike's working on Jody's car when he hears those strange animal sounds again. He calls to Jody to see if it's him. It's not Jody, though. Yeah. And we see robed figures scuttling by and start shaking the car. And they're really shaking it. Well, Mike crawls the rest of the way under the car for some reason. As the car gets knocked off the jack, trapping him under it. And he sees feet standing next to the car, so he whacks him with the hammer. But this time it really was Jody. Mike tries to explain about the strange creatures again, but Jody doesn't believe him. So Jody tells Mike he's crazy and just walks out. Back in his bedroom, Mike straps a knife to his leg under his pants. Because when you need a knife, you want to have to pull your pants up to get it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and he's got those knee-high tube socks on too, man. I'm glad they don't make those anymore. Then he heads out into the night. He's going to the cemetery. 
The gates are locked, so he climbs over them. This is the only time in this movie that the gates are ever locked. The rest of the movie, they'll be standing wide open. Yeah. He crosses the cemetery and then approaches the mansion. He breaks a basement window to get inside, making a whole lot of noise. This kid is not sneaky. He is double plus not sneaky. Yeah. He's still a kid in this one. So, but yeah, as he gets older, he gets a little bit more restrained. But yeah, he's totally just a wild ass kid. Yeah. He bumps into something that causes a wig to drop into his arms, which I suppose was supposed to startle us, but he didn't sell it. So I wasn't scared. Yeah. Didn't didn't sell it at all. Oh, I cut a wig. Yeah. Wonder what that's doing down here. (laughs) (laughs) Up in the funeral parlor, a door opens and a man enters and. I guess it's a night watchman. Mike hides inside a coffin and he just lays his lighter on the edge of the coffin to keep the door, the lid from closing all the way so he can see out. The tall man is with the night watchman and they both leave after not finding anything in there. Mike climbs out of the coffin and creeps back to the door and we see him creeping through the halls of the mausoleum. He hears a clanging behind a door and as he runs around a corner, He is chased by this flying silver ball that barely misses him. Just this, just a shiny silver ball flying through the air. Oh, man. And this is why I always wanted to see this movie as a kid. I never saw it until watching it now, but this was why I wanted to see that flying ball. They're so cool looking. It really is. Like the way they got it, where it looks like it's moving, it's not really moving, and they just like kind of like, turn on a dime and shit i don't know yeah well as he runs away mike's grabbed by the night watchman as the flying ball returns this time it's got blades sticking out the front three of them and it looks pretty wicked yeah mike bites the night watchman i mean he bites him hard too he takes a chunk of meat out of his arm the night watchman releases him just in time to get stabbed in the forehead by the flying ball and this effect was so funny because you see the ball going through the air and then it just goes bonk and stops dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they use a little bonk sound effect. too. <laughs> yeah, it's like a cartoon sound effect. It's great. Then a drill comes out of the ball, drilling into the guy's forehead and draining all of his blood in a fountain. Uh, Mike is standing off to the side watching this as... I guess we see the night watchman pee himself once he's dead. Mike pulls out his knife and the tall man walks up behind him. (laughs) Mike tries to think of something to say, but he can't. He just goes, um, uh, shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Well, he and the tall man approach each other. Then Mike bolts down a side corridor and into a room with a steel door that he slams shut and he bars it. We see Mike trying to catch his breath, and then the camera pans over to the side a little bit to show the tall man's hand is trapped in the door and his fingers just flapping around. So Mike cuts those fingers off that causes this weird yellow blood to spurt out all over the wall. On the floor, the fingers are still moving, so Mike does the obvious thing. He picks up one and puts it in his pocket. Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, what would you do? And not that, uh, I'd get the fuck out of it. Well, he gets out. He's being chased by these little robed guys who try to grab him as he climbs out the basement window, but he gets away and he runs home. 
Next morning, Mike's asleep on the fuzzy stairs. I mean, the shag carpet never quits on these stairs. Oh, hell no. That's a nice staircase, man. <laughs> you could literally sleep up like, like he is, like just sleep on the stairs. Yeah. That deep, deep shag. Oh, yeah. You can hear people walk in. <laughs> he's got a shotgun and he's got a box that is moving all by itself. Then we hear the toilet flush and Jody shows up. He wakes Mike up by unloading the shotgun. Uh, Mike tells his story and shows Jody the severed fingers still moving in some yellow goop. And now, now Jody believes him. So then he tells Jody about what happened after Tommy's funeral. They're going to go talk to the sheriff. Mike goes upstairs to get the box, but all of a sudden it's not moving. That's weird. Wonder what that's about. He opens up the box. Big mistake. Big mistake. If you got a box that's moving on it all on its own and it suddenly stops moving, you don't open that damn box. Yeah. There's something in there that's going to get you. <laughs> and just to prove it, Mike opens the box and a giant fly monster with glowing red eyes jumps out of it. He can't find it until it starts climbing up the back of his head. Yeah, that it's like a slow reveal too. He's like, "Well, where where's that?" He's looking all over the room, and all of a sudden, his hair starts moving. Yeah, and then yeah, it's like a big, like, uh, cartoony kind of Halloween decoration in his head. <laughs> well, Mike grabs his jacket and traps the the creature in his jacket, which he then gives to Jody and. The acting here was kind of cheesy, but it was kind of fun too. The way they're they're making it seem like this creature is trying to get away from them, banging them into the walls and stuff. They take it to the kitchen and try to shove it down the garbage disposal, which they think works. It kind of uh, rips a hole in Mike's good denim jacket, though. That yeah, sucks. A, yeah, major bummer. Yeah. Then there's a knock at the door. It's Reggie. Reggie offers to take Mike with him on his ice cream truck route when the bug monster pops back up out of the garbage disposal, kisses Reggie on the lips, and then tries to get into Mike's shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Jody manages to trap it in the jacket again. This time they shove it way down the garbage disposal. They sh shove it with authority down there this time. Yeah, they shoved it with a knife. Yeah. They stabbed it down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> But it did. It popped out of that garbage disposal right into Reggie's mouth. Yeah, that's funny as shit. Like he just <laughs> opened the door. Like, hey, what's up, guys? Pop. Monster kiss. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> well, this is all they need. They are all going to take care of what's going on at the funeral home. And we see Jody distributing guns. He gives Mike a shotgun and tells him, you don't point this at anybody unless you plan to shoot him. And don't shoot anybody unless you intend to kill him. No warning shots. Warning shots are bullshit. Yeah. Well, Jody is going on his own to the funeral home to deal with the tall man. And he expects Mike to stay home. He just wants him to have a shotgun to be safe at home. Jody arrives at the cemetery and he sneaks into the mansion through the same window that Mike broke the night before. When he turns on a light, there's a tiny robed figure standing behind him. The robed dwarf jumps on his back in a way that we would see again in about three years in a music video for the safety dance by Men Without Hats. 
<laughs> so he's running around with this dwarf on his half. Unlike the music video, though, Jody escapes his attacker by shooting him several times and then climbs back out the window and runs away as somebody in the hearse chases him down. Jody shoots at the hearse as it drives past him. And then his car drives up and stops right in front of him. We can't really see a driver, and Jody's kind of suspicious of why his car would be up there. Turns out it's Mike. He just couldn't get the door open. (laughs) (laughs) Jody gets in, and they drive off as the hearse starts chasing him again. Jody's going to try to shoot the driver with a shotgun, but there isn't a driver. But that's not going to stop Jody. He just starts shooting anyway. He's going to try to blow up the engine, and, and that actually works. And then the hearse crashes into a tree. Mike and Jody turn around and go back to investigate, and they find the robed dwarf in the driver's seat. And when Jody pulls back the hood, he discovers it's the corpse of Tommy. And now Tommy has yellow goo pouring out of his mouth. Gross. Yeah, pretty bad. Well, they find a phone booth and call Reggie to bring his ice cream truck so they can keep the dead dwarf on ice for some reason. (laughs) Back at Reggie's house, Reggie gets startled when Myrtle comes out of a bedroom to say, you boys home yet? We don't know who Myrtle is. We're never going to see Myrtle again. She's just there for this one scene. Yeah. And and it's a scare that really doesn't fit. You know, it's just thrown in there gratuitously because well we haven't had a jump scare in like three minutes now the guys are sitting by the fire trying to figure out what's going on and reggie has an idea he wants to kill the tall man to find out what's going on jody wants reggie to take mike over to sally's antique store to keep him safe and at the shop we see mike just wandering around bored he's looking through some old photos when he finds a photo of the tall man driving a horse-drawn hearse. And as he looks at this photo, the man in the photograph turns and looks straight at him. So Mike wants Sally to take him back home. If I found haunted pictures, I wouldn't want to stay there either. Yeah. That is a cool effect. They used to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that done a lot in in horror movies, and I like it. Uh, it's it's You know it's going to happen. And yeah. then it happens, and it's cool. Yeah, like in ghost movies or vampire yeah. movies. Like, oh, this guy's been around forever. Yeah. Yep. Well, back in his ice cream truck, Reggie hears some banging because the dead dwarf isn't quite dead, and it's trying to get out. <laughs> then we cut immediately to Jody back at home all of a sudden, and he closes his eyes and wakes up in the mausoleum. And the tall man's coming for him, and the door bursts off of a vault over his head, and arms grab Jody and drag him into the vault. And that's when Jody wakes up back at the house. That was just a dream. Nothing to worry about there. Sally and her friend are driving Mike back home when they come upon the wrecked ice cream truck. The ice cream truck is laying on its side now. Mike gets out to investigate. This little 14-year-old boy is ordering two grown women around, and they're doing just as they're told. Sorry about that, ladies. We didn't write this script. The lock has been broken off the back doors of the ice cream truck. Mike opens the door very, very slowly to see what's in there. And there's nothing in there except a yellow goo handprint. 
He runs back to the car and tells Sally to get out of there quick. They hear that that growling noise again, and something starts trying to unlock the car doors from outside. Sally's friend Susie opens up the door for some reason, and that's when the dwarf jumps in and attacks him. And apparently there's more than one because there's one up in the front seat with Sally and Sue, and there's another one in the back seat trying to get Mike. Yeah. Well, he breaks out the back window of the car and falls to the street as the car drives off with Sally, Susan, and two killer dwarfs. (laughs) Oh, man. That'd be a great show, two killer dwarfs. (laughs) It's like pro girls, but not, you know? Yeah, we'll get Peter Dinklage. Yeah, Dinklage. We'll get Peter Dinklage and Brad Williams. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll get get Peter Dinklage and Brad Williams to play the two killer dwarfs. That'd be awesome. That would be awesome. If anybody in Hollywood hears this, uh, you know what? You don't even have to pay me. Just make it so I can enjoy it. Yeah. I'd take a walk <laughs> role as like a murder victim of one of the dwarves. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike recovers and runs home. He tells jo- Jody that the dwarfs got Sally, Susie, and Reggie. Jody's taking Mike up to his room to lock him in there while he goes after the tall man again. Up in his room, Mike has a shotgun shell and an idea. It's MacGyver time. Oh, man. As he figures out a way to improvise a weapon using a shotgun shell, a thumbtack, some scotch tape, and a hammer. And he uses this to blow a hole in the door so he can reach through and unlock it. Yeah, he like his brother wedged a screwdriver through the door lock. I don't know. Somehow yeah, just kind of wedged it in the door jam to keep it shut. I mean, I know how you can do that with a knife, but it's usually on the inside, you know, and it's like, but it worked. And yeah, he comes out with that like, uh, oh, yeah. It, well, first he's pouting and stuff. And then he's like, wait, I got this. I got this. I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely does MacGyver there. MacGyvered the hell out of it. (laughs) And it just blows this little hole in the door and he reaches through the door. The thing is, though, he's been messing with this door before because when it pulls back to the other side of the room, you can see down low where he's kicked a hole in the door. The door's hollow. He could probably punch right through it if he tried. Yeah, but nah, uh, not today. Not when you can make a cool hammer shotgun. Yeah. Downstairs, Mike grabs a gun and heads out to follow Jody, but the tall man is at the door and he has regrown his fingers and he grabs Mike, dragging him out of the house. When Mike struggles, the tall man lifts him up one handed and just tosses him into the back of the hearse. Meanwhile, Jody has arrived at the cemetery right on his heels. The tall man arrives with Mike in the hearse. Mike's got a gun, but since there are four more Phantasm movies to make, he can't just shoot the tall man. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> and judging by the way the tall man's fingers regrew, it probably wouldn't matter if he did. Yeah. Instead, he shoots out the back window of the hearse and one of the back tires, then dives out of the car before the car crashes into a pole and explodes in flames. Maybe that was enough to kill the tall man. Maybe. Maybe. Inside the mausoleum, Jody, I knew it was going to happen. I was going to call him Judy at some point. (laughs) (laughs) There's a reason they stopped naming boys Jody. 
That happens every once in a while. (laughs) Jody has opened up the crypt containing his father's coffin. He opens up the coffin, but he just can't bring himself to look, and he closes the lid. Meanwhile, Mike enters the mansion, and we see a point-of-view shot from the steel ball that's flying through the corridors, and it's kind of infrared. I guess it's supposed to look infrared. It's just my, it's red and black. Everything's red and black. Kind of like a Terminator vision. Yeah, kind of like that. Well, Mike finds his dad's coffin. Jody's gone now. The coffin's laying out in the hallway, but Jody's long gone. Don't know where he went. He's just gone. Well, Mike opens the coffin and sees that the coffin is empty, and that causes him to run away screaming. And he runs right into the steel ball. The steel ball speeding toward Mike knives out. And that's when Jody appears out of nowhere with the shotgun and shoots it down. End of the steel ball. That sucked. I like the steel ball. Hey, come back. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike and Jody head toward a mysterious door together. And they're getting ready to open the door when Reggie jumps up behind them and scares them both. Turns out he was not killed in the ice cream truck wreck. He says he's been hiding in a casket. He also says he found Sally and Sue and a few other girls he's never seen before and helped them escape. Good old Reggie. Good old Reggie. Now the three of them are going to go through the door into this solid white room filled with these black barrels and a pair of really strange silver poles. And there's also a hum of machinery. Looking into the barrels, Jody says there's dwarves in them. And Mike discovers that the space between the poles is really a portal to, of some kind when his hand disappears into it. Well, he remembers the psychic granny telling him to put his hand in the box and don't be afraid. So he, he pokes his hand in and gets yanked into a world where everything is red. Yeah. And it's kind of like he's skydiving. Or maybe just plain falling. He doesn't have a parachute, so it's probably just falling. But down on the ground, he can see a bunch of barrels standing around and a line of dwarves exiting the barrels and filing off single file toward the horizon. Like infinity, like it just goes on forever. Forever, yeah. Well, then a, um, a hand reaches out and grabs Mike's belt. And yanks him back out of this world. It was Jody reached through and grabbed him. And Jody and Reggie start beating on him like he's on fire or something. Because there is smoke coming off of his jacket. Yeah. Mike explains that he's figured it all out. The dwarves are slaves. And they have to be so short. Because there's higher gravity. And it's a lot hotter on this other place. And that the poles are a portal to the tall man's home planet. As soon as he explains this, the machinery humming stops and everything goes completely black. This is what you do when you want to show something implausible, but you don't really want to put it on the screen. You just make the power go out and everything's black. Yeah. Just like in the murder mysteries when the lights go out and then they come back on and somebody's dead. Mike lights his lighter. And as soon as he does, there's a little dwarf right in front of him and it attacks. So the lights go out again. Mike seems to have or Jody seems to have found an exit and Reggie seems to have lost everybody. But it sounds like a dwarf might have found Reggie. Jody made his way outside and he's running around the mansion calling for Mike inside the mansion. The machinery starts up again and the lights come back on. 
And it shows Reggie just standing alone in this room full of barreled dwarves. There's something about these poles that reminds Reggie of his tuning fork that he uses when he tunes his guitar. And he's about to grab that pole when the camera cuts to Jody outside. He's still looking for Mike, but the lady in lavender is standing right behind him with a knife. Inside the house, Reggie grabs a hold of the poles, stopping their vibration. That shocks the lady in lavender, and she gasps. Then something knocks Reggie away from the poles, just like whatever knocked Mike's bicycle or motorcycle over in the cemetery. It knocks him away from the poles and then starts dragging him and the barrels into the portal. Well, Reggie manages to claw his way across this marble floor to the door and escape into the hallway, but that's not that's not the end of it because outside apparently there's a hurricane. <laughs> Don't know where it came from, but there's a hurricane. Yeah, like the whole thing's kind of cartoony. Like when he gets knocked down, it's like there's a fan on, and then people are just throwing those barrels over it. Right, and then it yeah, you're like, well, that was kind of funny and stuff. And then it cuts outside to Mike screaming. And it's just all hell goes loose and, you you know, like his hair's all over the place and shit. And they're just throwing leaves. <laughs> just big piles and, of leaves. <laughs> yeah, like, they got these powerful fans on. They're just throwing leaves in front of it. And it's just like, oh, man. You know, if somebody was standing in front of the fan, you know, with a like a box or a bag and letting a few leaves fall out every once in a while, that would be something. But it looks like somebody's just got a big armful of leaves and they throw them at the fan and it blows them as one clump right across the yard. Yeah, pretty much. You're getting hit in the face with just clumps of leaves. (laughs) I loved it. It was funny. Well, Mike continues uh, searching for Jody as Reggie makes his way outside into the wind. Also, he sees the lady in lavender lying unconscious on the lawn. And if there's one thing we know about Reggie... He's got to save the ladies in distress. So he runs up to her. He rolls her over and she promptly stabs him in the gut. Mike and Jody finally find each other and they go looking for Reggie, who is dying as the lady in lavender watches. Then her face changes back and forth between the lady and the tall man and the lady and the tall man. Apparently, they like watching Reggie die, both of them. (laughs) And they reach down. And it's weird the way they do it because you see the lady's hand grab a hold of the knife handle and then you see the tall man pull the knife out. Yeah. So apparently they're the same person. Yeah, he can he can switch into I don't I don't want to go into like cuz there's a lot of lore goes into this especially like with five movies and a bunch of nerds, you know. But <laughs> the La- lady in lavender is a character that the tall man invented so he could seduce people and kill them quicker because he was tired of just w- waiting for them to die. Okay. Their bodies. So the lady in lavender is like what he uses to like speed up stuff. If that All makes right. any sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And if any of our viewers want to respond to that with a statement that begins, actually, feel free to do so in the comments on Facebook. That would be awesome. I actually might respond back. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. If you want to talk to us about our movies, do it. We love it. Oh, yeah. Read us some more movies. Like, because uh, we, I, I, 
I'll love, I'll watch anything I ain't seen before. You know? <laughs> Tell me what you think's weird. You know, I'll see what's, if it's weird, you know. Well, Mike and Jody finally see Reggie, but it's too late. And they get in the black barracuda and make their escape as the mansion just teleports the hell out of there. Oh man. They stole that from Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This was actually three years after Rocky Horror Picture Show, too. I had to do the same thing where it turns, yeah. Yeah. Back at home, Jody tells Mike about an old mine shaft that they can push the tall man down if they can figure out how to get him up there. So he sends Mike into the house to get more ammo and wait for him while he goes to remove all the warning signs around the mine shaft so they can roadrunner Wiley Coyote, the tall man. <laughs> I mean, I guess the only other thing they could try if this doesn't work is paint a tunnel on the side of a brick wall and see if he runs into it. Yeah. That, like, that's it when you got like uh, young kids as like your protagonist or whatever. It's like, uh, oh yeah, like uh, it, let's put a thumbtack and a shotgun shot open this door. And, yeah. Uh, like, yeah, let's paint a, a tunnel on the side of the building. We can get them that way. Right. Love that. <laughs> Inside the house. Down. Sorry, go ahead. Like, let's take down this monster with a slingshot, you know, or or a uh asthma inhaler. Yeah, something like that. Like, you know, <laughs> their imaginations run wild on the shit. <laughs> Inside the house, Mike is locking all the windows. He pulls back curtains on one of the windows, and there stands the tall man. He breaks the window and grabs for Mike, but Mike is Mike gets away. Next time we see him, he's upstairs being sneaky, or maybe he's downstairs. It's hard to tell in this house, but he's being sneaky. In the darkened house, the tall man has had enough, and he just blows the door off its hinges, and he's standing there with his hands behind his back looking all creepy and coffin-shaped. I liked that. I like it, too. I like, uh, like the certain times, like the tall man, right? He's this tall, sneaky, ageless motherfucker, right? Right. Something about Mike just being a kid and... uh getting away with so much shit it infuriates the tall man to where tall man will just like break bad and yeah. just have enough of his shit and just like you know what that's it i'm and like that's when the wind happens and you know cars get flipped over and shit because tall man is just tired of mike's shit oh yeah you're absolutely right because as soon as that door flies off we hear the tall man speak for probably the second time ever as he says boy yeah, oh man, that boy. He get paid so much money just to show up at the event and go, boy. Yeah, I'm sure. When that happens, the chase is on. Mike runs out of the house and the tall man follows. Gravestones pop up out of the ground in front of him. Mike gets trapped in, you know, if he got trapped in mud or quicksand, that would be one thing. But this show takes the awesomeness all the way up to 11 might get stuck in zombie quicksand. Yeah, which is way worse than your regular quicksand and stuff. Right. <laughs> but he manages to escape by not being afraid, and the tall man continues stalking Mike. Mike is armed with a knife when the lady in lavender appears behind him. She's got a knife, too. You think we could see a West Side Story knife fight here? That'd be cool, but no. Nah. No. Well, Mike runs from her through some bushes, and then he just stands there waiting. 
until the tall man bursts through and starts chasing him again. Mike runs down a trail and jumps over the disguised mine shaft. And just like in a Bugs Bunny cartoon, the tall man falls in and Jody is up on a cliff overhead and pushes a whole pile of boulders down to fill in the mine shaft. And there's a rumbling sound coming from the mine shaft. And then Mike wakes up in his bed to the sound of thunder. Next, Mike is sitting in front of the fire talking with Reggie. We just saw Reggie die. Yeah. Well, Reggie's explaining, or Mike is explaining that he knows the rocks won't hold the tall man. First, he killed mom and dad, and then he killed Jody. And now he's coming after Mike. I'm really freaking confused at this point, Jesse. This is where it goes into that dreamy, like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Reggie explains that the tall man didn't kill Jody. Jody died in a car wreck. Then it cuts to Mike standing in a cemetery at Jody's grave. And the date on the grave marker shows that Jody died a year before this. Back by the fire, Reggie explains to Mike that this was all just a dream. Reggie is Mike's guardian after Jody died in his car wreck, apparently. They plan to take a road trip for a couple of weeks. So Mike goes upstairs to get ready for their trip, while Reggie just sits by the fire playing guitar. In his room, Mike has a photo of Jody that he packs along with some clothes, and he moves a door, his closet door. There's a mirror on the door. And when he moves this mirror, you see the tall man standing in the room. And he yells, boy. And then dwarf arms break through the mirror, grab Mike and pull him through. Fade to black, roll credits. Nice. Yes. That and then you fun. get like an awesome main theme song from this movie, which we didn't even like talk about. That song is badass. I don't even think I listened to that. I think I skipped it. Oh man, I got in like so many like playlists and shit. Just I don't know. It's like uh, I like it's a spooky song, so it like works, you know, around like uh, yeah, you know, Halloween and stuff. But at the same time, it's a great song just to like turn on like on a sunny day and just cruise around. Okay, I mean maybe not with today's gas prices, but you know, <laughs> back in the day it was nice. Yeah, I'm just glad we don't have to pay European gas prices. Oh my god. Yeah. True that, true that. I was watching a video of somebody in Scotland, and he was filling up his truck. He put 18 gallons of gas in his truck. Cost him $136, because they pay about $7.50 a gallon over there before all this crap with Russia and Ukraine kicked off. Yeah, oh man, dude. Plus, right. that's like enough shit, so yeah. Yeah, this was a fantastic movie. I enjoyed it. It was cheesy. It was confusing. It was I liked it. Yeah. Oh man, it's it's like one of those movies where like you like if you got a friend that's not into horror movies. Yeah. Try asking yourself. Don't go straight to like, you know, the killer nun or like the stuff they got out now. You know, that's right. Those are like specifically made for like horror fans. Yeah. This one, you don't really know where it's going. Like the whole thing's a dream. Oh, yeah. If you've got a Formula Horror fan, this will just drive them batshit crazy. Oh, it did. <laughs> I mean, when it came out, they were like, what is this? Like, <laughs> yeah, it was it was weird movie. And like, I don't know. I remember watching like, you know, as a kid, like he, they used to have it like on uh, TNT all the time and uh, uh -huh. like the movie channel. And 
Hell, man, I, I've, I've probably rented it like four or five times before even seeing it on cable, you know? Yeah. Now, this is one of those movies that when it came out in theaters in 79, I wanted to see it. I didn't get to see it because my parents were not fans of horror. And so you're just not going. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I just never got around to seeing it until watching it uh, this week. And man, I'm glad I saw it because it it did not disappoint. Hell yeah. I mean, I had to watch it a couple of times to just understand what the hell was going on, but it was worth it. Uh, don't watch the other one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I like them, but like I've kind of invested in that whole like, you know, mythos and the, the whole movie thing and stuff. Right. Uh, part two, uh, he got a big uh, Hollywood budget and stuff, and they had some... Uh, Oh no, that means yeah. the studio was involved in it. Yeah. Um, and the second one suffers a lot from studio uh sticking his, you know, hands in the pie and shit. Yeah. Uh they kept Reggie though. That was the so they, you know Okay. Uh the third one, it's better. It was like straight to video. It's kinda got some comedy elements into it. It's a road trip movie. Yeah. And then like four and five are for like diehard fans only. Oh wow. Yeah, that's how they were like, well, we got to explain all this shit that we did in the first three movies. And then five is just like a bunch of like uh, fan service. It's, it's pretty much like a, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, fan fiction, you know? Oh, okay. And uh, they used a lot of leftovers from the first movie because the first movie, they didn't even put like half of what they had filmed. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. And that was because cause Don Coscarelli just kept changing his mind about where he was going with it the editing on this movie is absolutely horrible for just that reason we got a guy who i mean he's got the vision but he doesn't have the skill as an editor to put a movie together well um and he got lucky with this one you know it's one of those things where sometimes it's better to be lucky than good it would have helped if he was good but I mean, being lucky worked out for him this time. Yeah. Bossy, he was like a kid when he made this. Pretty yeah. Much. Yeah. Uh, he's got, he's gotten way better now. Well, he, he got better. Like, I don't know. I'm a big fan of the Beastmaster movies and shit. So I liked all those silly ass movies, you know? I don't think I've seen any of them. Uh, yeah, I've seen them all. <laughs> okay. They're pretty good. <laughs> all right, man. I think that's a podcast. Hell yeah. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We had a lot of fun making it. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you hear us. You can follow CDF Pod on Facebook and Instagram or at CDF underscore pod on Twitter. You can also visit our website at CDFPod.com. And don't forget you can help us make donations to film schools all across the country by going to Patreon.com slash CDFPod. Join us next time as we explore another movie so awesome it probably shouldn't have been made.